0: Available on digital
1: media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry.
2: Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters and this edition is being recorded on the 14th of February 2024. Coming up in this week's programme, we'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the BBC PIPs. We're also looking at another organisation celebrating anniversaries which has uh, been working for over 200 years and that's the Royal National Lifeboat Institute uh, we're looking at um, uh, hurdy-gurdy days again. We have uh, uh, polar explorer Mark Wood. Uh, we've got the story of a, a young man called Ruben Coe. Very interesting story. And the rest of it is all words, words, words. Uh, but first, more words, um, we have the news from Peter and Elaine. Outlook News.
3: The West Midlands will get a gigafactory if Labour wins power, the Shadow Chancellor has claimed. Funding pledged for the scheme by the party last year has not been hit by ditching a flagship £28 billion a year investment target for green projects, Rachel Reeves said last Friday. She made the comments on a visit with leader Keir Starmer to the Manufacturing Technology Centre in Amstey Coventry, which employs 700 people. The party revealed yesterday its target for green investment would be slashed to £15 per year, with its leadership blaming the U-turn on the government's damage to the economy. Reeves told the local Democracy Reporting Service that the party were really keen to keep the parts of its green investment plan that are about jobs and industries of the future. And obviously gigafactories are a massive part of that. The money remains, the commitment remains, and the West Midlands, under Labour's plan, will get a gigafactory, which I know is incredibly important to people in Coventry and across the West Midlands because of the car industry here. Asked if that is $2 billion for eight battery factories across the UK, a target announced last year, she said yes, that is correct and we've said specifically that one of them will be here in the West Midlands. But the LDRS asked how the public can trust this pledge, given the overall £28 billion target has now been cut back. Reeves responded, When we first made the commitment, the interest rates were 0.1%. They're now 5.25%. The government crashed the economy, she claimed, and I expect that most people because of what the government have done, have had to change their plans. It does mean we're not going to be able to do everything we want as quickly as we want, but the commitment to the Gigafactory absolutely remains. She said the party's plans set out yesterday will create half a million jobs across the country, which is really exciting. We met with young people here on apprenticeship programmes looking at green hydrogen, robotics, the built environment, and something called addictive manufacturing. I don't know what half of these things are, but these are the jobs and industries of the future. And we've got young people training up in Coventry today to do these jobs. And I think there's a really bright future for this part of the world because of the huge strengths in manufacturing. Plans for a gigafactory at the Coventry Airport site in Baggington have been in the works for three years. The proposal was put forward by Coventry Council and Coventry Airport Limited in 2021 and have been supported by West Midlands Mayor Andy Street. The project hopes to create 6,000 jobs and in October announced it is in advanced talks with several battery manufacturers.
4: The Department for Work and Pensions says new changes to the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill will not allow them to access bank accounts or to monitor how claimants spend their money. It comes after an online petition against the DWP's proposed measures to check bank accounts of people on state pensions or benefits reached over 10,000 signatures. The petition argues that these proposed changes are too aggressive towards benefit claimants and undermine their rights. Currently, the DWP can request bank transaction details if there is suspicion of fraud, but the new powers would allow mass monitoring even without any suspicion of fraudulent activity. Over 19,800 people have signed a petition started by Wendy Scott on the Petitions to Parliament website. The DWP responded in writing, stating that their current powers are limited and leave them unable to address certain fraud or error challenges. The DWP continued, We must modernise and strengthen DWP's legislative framework to give those fighting fraud the tools they need to stand up to future challenges and minimise the impact of genuine mistakes that can lead to debt. They added, The third party data gathering measures enables DWP to request data from third parties so we can more proactively detect fraud and error in the welfare system. The DWP clarified that third parties will need to examine their own data and give relevant information to the department. This implies that such data might hint at cases where claimants do not meet the eligibility criteria for their current benefits. DWP will only receive data and accounts matching criteria the DWP prescribes. These will be linked to eligibility criteria for benefits that, if met, may require further consideration to ensure a claim is correct through our business-as-usual processes, the DWP explained further. Moreover, according to the DWP, some benefits have rules about how much a claimant can hold in a bank account to remain eligible, the capital limit. Nearly £900 million in universal credit overpayments during the 2022-23 financial year were due to claimants breaching this limit, making it one of the largest sources of fraud and error in the welfare system. Last year, the benefit system lost £8.3 billion because of mistakes and fraud. The DWP thinks that the new plan could save up to £600 million by the year 2028-29. Campaigners are increasingly hopeful
3: a historic and much-loved Coventry Church will be saved from demolition. Hercule Baptist Church, known almost as much for its Christmas star as its well-used base for faith and community groups, went up for sale last week, prompting fears it could be snapped up by developers and turned into housing. Local residents, community groups and councillors have rallied to protect the plot and the building, parts of which are close to 100 years old. An application for the site to be given locally listed status has now been submitted to Coventry City Council. There has been further cause for optimism among campaigners ahead of a meeting at the church last week when Councillor Jane Innes said, the estate agent told me and other campaigners on Wednesday that there has been a large amount of interest from other faith groups. I watched three groups of potential purchasers look round, If a faith group was to take on the plot, marketed on several leading websites at 750,000, it would almost certainly be retained for community use, something Councillor Innes and the Friends of Hursall Community Rooms group are fighting for. Another layer of protection exists in the form of the local plan, in which the site is identified for community use. Under the terms of the local plan, it cannot be cleared for redevelopment without formal change of use application. The Council's Conservation Officer will conduct a site visit in the coming days before compiling a report to be presented to Councillor David Welsh, the local authority's housing chief. If the application is deemed to meet locally listed criteria, it will go out to public consultation. Given the level of support offered to a petition on the subject, the consultation feedback would likely bolster the campaigners further. More than 1,000 people have signed the locally listed petition since it went live
4: last month. An investigation is underway into the blaze at the old Orsley Hotel, which led to a road closure for 12 hours. At its height... 50 firefighters were called into action at the venue in Birmingham Road. Residents and businesses were urged to keep their windows and doors closed while dozens of firefighters tackled the blaze. 999 calls were made at 6.45am last Sunday and it led to police closing off the road so that the fire crews could get to work. This road closure remained in place as crews dampened down the three-storey building. West Midlands Fire Service confirmed that while the response was scaled back, firefighters remained at the scene into the night. Investigations were soon underway into the cause of the significant fire involving multiple parts within the building. It is understood that this investigation was being taken, uh, was taking place between the fire service and police. It is not the first time that there has been a fire at the derelict hotel. Last February, 13 firefighters were called to the scene of a blaze at the once popular venue and this came just weeks after a suspected arson attack in January of last year and another attack back in September 2022. Police have now said they believe arsonists started the blaze. A West, Midland, West Midlands Police have confirmed that a hunt is on to find the suspects. A force spokesperson said that witnesses are key to the investigation and urged anyone with any information to come forward. In 2021, the hotel was being used to house asylum seekers as part of a Home Office contract, but then it closed before the end of that year. Staff at the Body Shop stores across
3: Coventry and Warwickshire could see their jobs put at risk because the Body Shop has hired administrators. The retailer, which has stores in Coventry, Nuneaton and Leamington Spa, has appointed insolvency experts to oversee the process. The administrators have said they will consider all options to find a way forward for the business. It comes after years of financial struggles and amid a challenging backdrop for shoppers. The well-known high street firm will carry on trading through stores and online while the process is conducted. Administrators say that the process will only affect its UK business. International franchises will not be impacted, they say. The administrators are expected to seek buyers for the business and its assets, but there are concerns over the future of its stores and workforce. This includes the branch in the West Orchard Shopping Centre. The retailer was founded in 1976 by Anita Roddick and her husband Gordon, as one of the first companies to promote so-called ethical consumerism, focusing on ethically produced cosmetics and skincare products. It comes only weeks after new owners, European private equity firm Aurelius, took control of the business. Aurelius, which specialises in buying and turning around troubled firms, secured a £207 million deal in November to buy the body shop, from Brazilian cosmetics giant Natura & Co. It only took control of operations officially on January the 1st. The business employed around 10,000 people worldwide at the time of the takeover. Aurelius agreed a deal late last month to sell the company's operations in most of mainland Europe and in parts of Asia to an international family office in a decisive step towards delivering a strong turnaround strategy at the body shop. The body shop has faced an extended period of financial challenges under past owners, coinciding with a difficult trading environment for the wider retail sector.
4: Coventry will get a share of £1 million, earmarked by transport bosses to develop proposals for a new railway station in the city. The Cash will look to explore the possibility of building a new station in Coventry East, which would cover Binley and Willenhall. Coventry East would be on the line linking the city with Rugby. Castle Bromwich has also been mooted to get a new station by West Midlands Rail Executive, as has an area near Teton Hall. These locations have been shortlisted by the WMRE following a feasibility study. This study concluded that a new station could provide much-needed improvement to public transport for Binley and Willenhall. Each of the potential new stations is in an area with a lack of rapid public transport links and is selected due to its high levels of deprivation. The station name will be decided in collaboration with the local community. Further proposed stations which have not made the shortlist including one in Falls Hill, could be reconsidered once the Midlands rail hub is under construction. The WMCA added it remained confident a new station at Cowden Road could still happen. West Midlands Mayor Andy Street said, With five new railway stations under construction and a sixth on the way, we're getting on with delivering the transport infrastructure local people want to see right across our region. We've now whittled down our list of stations to a priority list of these three, as these are the ones most likely to deliver the biggest benefit to the communities they serve. For those locations which did not make the shortlist, we're still looking at ways to bring forward Mm -hmm. delivery.
3: Finding drivers who park on pavements would make a fortune at Hill Road, say Coventry Telegraph readers, who have cautiously backed the idea. The paper asked readers if they wanted to see a pavement parking ban in Coventry after campaigners called for a similar move in Birmingham. It comes after parking on the pavement has been banned in parts of Scotland with drivers flouting the new rule fined up to £100. And in Coventry the issue has proved to be almost as divisive as Brexit with 56, <coughs> 56% of people voting in favour and 43% against. Plenty of people also have their say on the issue. One said, enforce it, then spend the first week at poleshill we'll make a fortune. And another explained why a ban would make a difference to disabled people. I use a mobility scooter, and constantly get held up by cars, not only parked partially on the pavement, but sticking out of gardens that are too short to accommodate them. I have often had to use the road to get past these obstacles, which, of course, is dangerous. I welcome a statutory £100 fine for the offenders the sooner the better. And another added, I am partially sighted. If I had a pound for every car I walked into when on the pavement, and for the abuse I get from selfish, arrogant, ignorant, self-centred, abusive car drivers, I would be very rich.' "'Instead, I'm frightened to go out now, as it is too dangerous.' But a dissenting voice said, "'Build adequate car parks down every street first, before even considering such a ban. "'Forcing cars to park in the road opposite each other will make the roads impassable.' And while another added, "'If everyone was to park fully on the road,' many roads would not be suitable for refuse lorries and emergency services to get down.
4: Concerned residents have launched a petition calling for a pedestrian crossing to be installed on a busy junction. Locals at Eastern Green say they believe that the council should take action on the intersection of Eastern Green Road and Allspath Lane before someone gets seriously hurt. Advocates argue that a pedestrian crossing is crucial to ensure the safety of both pedestrians and drivers. So far, they have gathered a petition bearing 64 names, started by local residents Vicky and Marcus Dean, who fear for the safety of their young children. The petition highlights the challenges faced by residents navigating the busy road near the Unicorn Pub and Unicorn Avenue shops. The petitioners cite limited visibility, vehicle speed and multiple junctions as significant concerns. Marcus said, I have two daughters aged six and nine and we like to walk to school. But the traffic on this part of the road means we often take the car instead as we struggle to cross the road safely. Visibility when trying to cross is poor and this, combined with the speed of some of the cars that use the road, makes crossing safely very difficult. We've witnessed other people having problems crossing, one of which described it as brutal. We are petitioning for the crossing before someone gets hurt. Our oldest daughter next year wants to walk to school, and without improvements to this road, we fear we may have to deny her this step in her growing independence. Three Woodlands Ward councillors had given their backing to the community-driven campaign and echoed calls for the council to act. Councillor Gary Ridley was set to present the petition to a meeting of all councillors on Tuesday, January 16th. They were expected to refer it to the Cabinet Member for City Services for further consideration and to hear directly from the campaigners. Residents were without electricity for several hours after
3: a fire broke out in Coventry. Firefighters were called to Everdon Road last Friday. Smoke could be seen coming from the pavement on Everdon Road. Crews from Foles Hill Fire Station were called to the scene at around 7.25am. Cordon's were erected while the incident was dealt with by the National Grid. Engineers were reportedly at the scene throughout the morning. Approximately 153 properties were left without power in Holbrooks. Residents were said to have been affected on Everdon Road and Langloge Road. National Grid said they apologise for any inconvenience this has caused and confirmed that the power supply has now been restored in Holbrooks. A spokesman for the National Grid said a fault was reported on our low voltage network at 7.40am affecting several streets
4: in Holbrooks. A much loved Coventry pub will be closed for good from last Sunday. The Rosie Coombe pub in Binley Woods has stood proudly in the city since 1935. Owner Alma Bai, 79, has been at the helm of the, of the much, sorry, has been at the helm of the popular city-based pub since 2008 and said that over the past few years they have faced an uphill battle. She said she took the difficult decision to close due to rising costs, which meant that running the pub was no longer viable. She also said that things completely changed after COVID. We've got lovely customers, young and old, mixed together, which is good. And the younger lads show us all respect. I've never had a problem with people. It is so lovely. Alma then went on to issue a stark warning to people, saying, if you do not use it, you will lose it. That is so true. There are lots of houses here and things could have been a lot different, but that's it, unfortunately. Pubgoers said they were saddened to hear that the pub will soon be closing and reminisced on on Facebook with many good wishes to Alma. Health expert Dr Michael Mosley says
3: one fruit popular for Pancake Day and Valentine's Day... Can cut the risk of heart disease, stroke and diabetes as well as lowering cholesterol. The expert behind numerous books, TV shows, radio shows and the Just One Thing podcast shares a recipe ideal for this time of year. It reads, strawberries can help to limit inflammation, manage blood sugars, reduce the risk of conditions like heart disease, stroke, diabetes and high cholesterol, as well as containing a healthy dose of vitamin C to support your immune system. Strawberries are also low in calories, so they're a great sweet option to enjoy on fasting and non-fasting days. Topping the strawberries with chopped hazelnuts and pumpkin seeds provides that extra boost of healthy fats, which can keep you full all evening after your meal. Pumpkin seeds in particular have even been shown to improve heart health, fertility, mood, energy levels and sleep quality. And pair this with the decadently dripped dark chocolate topping, which also improves mood and blood flow. The recipe involves cutting strawberries in half, dipping them in melted chocolate, sprinkling them with crushed hazelnut and pumpkin, then putting them in the fridge, for 15 minutes to set. Strawberries contain antioxidants which may help protect your body from oxidative stress and reduce the risk of chronic diseases like heart disease and cancer. Strawberries are also a good source of dietary fibre which can aid in digestion, promote bowel regularity, and help manage blood sugar levels. In addition to vitamin C and fibre, Strawberries also contain other important nutrients, such as manganese, folate, potassium and various vitamins and minerals. What a good excuse to eat more strawberries.
5: Outlook News
2: Thanks to this week's uh, newsreaders, Elaine and Peter, Um, And before we move on, we've got, uh, I've actually got two or three um, public notices uh, this week. Uh, But I'll start with the lighting up times. Uh, Sunset is 5.21pm. Sunrise is at 7.18am. Okay, we've had a a message from Robert Franklin. um, An organisation called Devon Insight are doing some free seminars which may be of interest to our listeners. Uh, the seminars are on Tuesday the 12th of March. Uh, the subject is good nutrition and eye health. On Tuesday the 9th of April, it's introduction to benefits. On Tuesday the 14th of May, it's introduction to the work of the eye clinic liaison officer. Uh, They're all these lectures on at 12.30am and they can be accessed via a free phone call on the following number 0808 169. 7930. Uh, if you want to know a little bit more about it, uh, the organisation's website is www.devoninsight.org.uk. Um and, uh, and, another bit of paper here with volunteer appeals for help from, from the Resource Centre. I'm um, <laughs> meant to ask listeners, uh, if uh, they have any size, any size plastic drinks bottles. Uh, please, for poppy day. Um, also looking for knitting patterns in reception, need red and purple patterns. And also any glass jars, coffee or the cooking sauce type, jars for tree lanterns. Thank you. Those are the announcements, and we'll move on with the programme. So here's Hugh with this week's News Resource Centre. Thank
0: Hugh. you very much. Thank you, Peter.
2: We are in... A lot better
1: state this week than we were last week um, a lot a lot calmer i'm very pleased to say um, uh you will have, well, I, I went off in some, uh, some detail last week about the bus thing, uh, so anyway, that's all sorted, uh, you know about that. We actually got the bus back a day early than we, uh, well, in fact, you know, several days earlier than we thought we would, uh, so whilst I casually announced last week that the bowls was cancelled, in the end it didn't have to be, So which was wow. uh, very good news for everybody involved, so um, thanks to everybody who, who pulled their weight in there, and particularly, uh, obviously, to our benefactor who, uh, who stumped up the cash. Um, what I've been working on quite a lot this week is um, setting up the new computers. Well, I say me, uh, Carl too. Carl was in over the weekend uh, and uh, did all the, the major grunt work on getting the new computers sorted out. I've been putting some finishing touches uh, on them. So, uh, as of uh well hopefully uh well this week um, the new computers are uh, uh are are available in the uh, in the computer room so anybody is coming to the IT class um, they're really good these computers the screens are big they're 27 inches which is uh, 5 inches bigger than the ones that we had previously um, and uh, they run on Windows 11, which is sort of the latest generation of uh, of the Windows operating system. What that means is actually the accessibility features in them are really very good indeed, uh, that um, when you magnify, or magnify a screen, when you enlarge the screen, enlarge the icons, enlarge the text, um, whereas under Windows 10 boxes and things went off the side in or down and you couldn't get to them and you couldn't hit function buttons and all sorts of things um, with these it's all properly formatted so you, you, you can just scroll down and get to see everything on the screen um, the displays are absolutely crystal clear um, and um, and the computers are fast so uh, we're very pleased uh, with them uh, m- many of the people in the computer group yesterday as I'm talking uh, were working on them and they, they, they thoroughly, thoroughly liked them so I hope everybody else will as well. If you're interested in taking part in a computer session, do please uh, uh, let us know. Um, if necessary, if we have throngs and throngs of people, we might just have to start thinking about uh, another, yet another IT session. Um, I, we're getting busier and busier these days and I would like there to be more groups like that. Now, um, one of the things that people have done on the uh, uh, on the old computers, was to store documents on them. And I'm very keen, very keen indeed, that people do not store documents on them. I'll be talking to uh, the volunteers in the, in the IT groups um, to en- uh, encourage, stroke, demand, stroke, require people that do not uh, store their personal documents on them. What we are going to provide, however, is USB sticks, m- much like the ones that many of you are listening to this program on now, uh, but for the computer. Uh, and if you've got documents that you want to store for coming back to later, if you're, for example, writing a story for creative writing or, or whatever, then uh, we will... Uh, give you um, a USB stick, and we'll keep it here. We'll put a, um, um, what are they called, a key ring on it, with your name on it, and so that's your storage device, and it will be here, waiting for you every time you come, um, so, uh, so that nobody has to lose it. But I really don't want, the more things that get stored on the computer, actually the more clogged up they get, mm-hmm. the slower they get over time, and we'd like to keep these computers, really, for quite some time, if that's all right, without them getting too clogged up. Uh, Anything that you do have already stored on there will be transferred uh, onto uh, onto USB sticks. If I know who who the uh, documents uh, are, whose they are, then we can. Um, Then I will certainly put them uh, certainly put them onto an individual stick with your name on. And if they if I don't, then they'll go onto a general stick, and we can uh, work it out later if you're missing something. So that's the computers. Uh, We've got NVDA installed on all of them. We've got Dolphin Guide installed on uh, many of them. Um, uh, So uh, any hopefully that will be enough. uh, If you need anything else. Uh, let us know. I'm not going to be installing JAWS, by the way, because that costs a fortune, um, even more of a fortune to us than it would to you if you to buy it. So, um, so uh, it's uh, NVDA or nothing if you want the text-to-speech um, accessibility. Okay, so that's that. Um, satellite groups um, uh, will be up and running. We have, um, I told you about this last week, but I'll just reiterate, so we have the first group, which is <coughs> going to be the Binley Group, CV3 VIPs it's called, uh, which will be taking place at the John White Centre um, on the 5th of March, uh, and then we've got one up at the Holbrooks Community Centre on the 6th of March, uh, in the morning that one, the, uh, the Binley one is in the afternoon. Um... And so so if you're up in that area and you don't regularly come into the centre, I think this would be a really good opportunity to come in for a monthly group, you know, just to, just to uh, have a bit of contact with us, see if there's anything we've got going on. Coody will be running, uh, sessions, um, with Specific themes. I think this first one is basically going to be about the resource centre and what we do, etc., etc. Now, one of the f- following on from the announcements that Pete just made um, from Robert. Hi, Robert. Thank you very much for those. It's very interesting information. Um, Where it comes to things like benefits and stuff like that, we now have that capacity here at the centre to be able to offer you a benefits review. If you would like a benefits review, uh, if you're not think if you don't think you're on enough or you haven't got you know the whole range of information there, you can. Come in and see us and we'll, we'll, we'll sort it out. We'll take you through the whole thing. Uh, we have a bit of um, software that allows us to go through absolutely everything in very fine detail um, and um, providing you bring us um, all the necessary information, good information in, good information out, um, and we can help you with that and, indeed, with some of these benefits um, Of course, we will help you apply for them if you uh, are not on them. So we've got that we've got that service and facility here to help you. In fact, any sort of thing to do with forms and filling in things, and um, a bit of advocacy, for example, you know, we're 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 right right up uh, with that. So uh, if you want to. Uh, if you want to do that. Uh, Now, lastly, we've had a leaflet through um, from an organisation called Sense Adventures. We're getting into that sort of time where people are booking their holidays a little bit. And uh, so Sense Adventure sent this, their leaflets and their walks uh, and activities for the visually impaired. Uh, they offer guided mini-breaks in the Malvern Hills area, including walks, activities and cultural great uh, breaks to small groups of blind and, uh, uh, and sighted people. Um, so there's... Uh, if you want more information, the old, uh, sighted uh, guides and everything, uh, they say they're a friendly, sociable bunch and each walk is different and an enjoyable experience. Um, you can contact a lady called D Jones, uh, on 07920 144614 or email her D, that's D double E, at senseadventures, all one word, dot co dot uk. Uh, you can rewind and listen to that again if you want, uh, or um, we'll keep this um, this leaflet uh, leaflet et really up in reception, and um, Heather or Carol um, will let you know if you haven't got that inf- if you can't come into the centre and you'd be interested. You can always call us on 024 7671 7522, and we'll give you the information over the phone. Um, oh don't forget also we've got the alpaca walk and meerkat experience which is taking place on the sometime in April just can't remember it right at the moment um, anyway I, you should have listened last week because I told you about it then anyway <laughs> £35 might be 22nd uh, 20 20 22nd, 28th mm-hmm. of April somewhere like that anyway and listen to last week's it would be good for you, if you still got it, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you may have already sent it back. Anyway, uh, or call the centre, because d- they they know. They know on reception. I don't. Um, I just I haven't got it written down madly. Uh, so there we are. Uh, we don't have any more update on the showdown just yet, but that will come, and uh, we will certainly be uh, making a big noise about that in due course. And I think that, dear friends, is it this week. Certainly a lot less than last.
2: Thank you ever so much, Hugh. Um, lovely place to go walking, the Morven Hills. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Particularly when you get to the top. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Always Can be laughs> a bit yes. All, always better in retrospect <laughs> yeah, than in uh, than in retrospect. than in action. Thanks I again. Think. Anyway, thank you.
2: Mark Wood, the polar explorer, is probably now experiencing the extreme cold of the Arctic. Fortunately, it's not so cold here. So sport has been continuing as ever. Here's Sarah with this week's roundup. <laughs> Outlook Sport
6: Yes, hello there lovely listeners It's Sarah with Sport Now I'm sure you have already heard this But last Tuesday That is the Tuesday before the last programme went out But the day after I recorded this Coventry made it through to the fifth round of the men's FA Cup. But they beat Sheffield Wednesday in a replay at the Coventry Building Society Arena. Four goals to one. Now it started off absolutely amazingly with Casey Palmer smashing home the first goal and Casey was the player who you may remember was racially abused by a section of the Sheffield Wednesday fans Fans, when they played their first match against Sheffield but anyway 4-1 it finished and now in the next round We play Maidstone, the lowly Maidstone, the lowest-ranked team left in the Cup. But I'll say one more thing about Maidstone at the end. Now, it was a bit of a weird Saturday for us sports lovers because there was no, well, as local sports lovers, there was no rugby due to the Six Nations being on. And Coventry's match had been pushed back to the Sunday So, but we had got two of our local teams were playing And it was great results for both of them Stratford travelled to Hitchin Town And won 3-4 And that was an incredible roller coaster topsy-turvy match Meanwhile, Leamington took it easy and stayed at home and played against Royston Town, winning three goals to one. This means that both of these local teams are in the promotion playoffs. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful if at least one of them could go up? Right, on to Sunday... Well, I'll start off with our local women's team, Rugby Borough Women. They travelled right down south to Plymouth Argyle and won two goals to four. At half time it was actually 4-0, but I think our women must have thought, oh, we don't want to humiliate little Plymouth, we'll let them score a couple. Meanwhile, Coventry, as I said last week, were playing Millwall at the CBS. Uh-huh. Well, I switched on about five minutes late because I don't, it was a bit of a rush after church. And when I switched on, they were saying, my gosh, why hasn't that ball gone in the goal? We had about four attempts then and it all seemed really positive but then you have guessed a short while afterwards Millwall scored and so it remained for too long actually until Millwall, being Millwall they have a bad reputation and their fans are even worse gave away a penalty Now there was a bit of an argy-bargy on the pitch but not between Millwall and the ref or Millwall and the City player but between two of our strikers Callum O'Hare and Hadji Wright because they both wanted to take the penalty I think they both want to be the leading striker in the goal rush but anyway Mr Wright won and Mr Wright scored one all, and then, shortly before full time, Mr Wright scored again from open play. This means that Hadji Wright, the American international, is now our leading goal scorer this season. The next match is also against Plymouth Argyle But that is on Wednesday, the day we're recording So I wouldn't be able to comment on that anyway And then next Saturday we are away at Stoke Now the match against Preston North End Which was due to be on the Saturday Has been brought forward to the Friday so that is a week on Friday because on Monday the 26th we entertain Maidstone in the fifth round of the cup yay got to be positive Yeah, but it just feels like a banana skin waiting to happen But it won't be, I'm sure And I look forward to bringing you the result Well, maybe Wishing to spread my sporting wings Or that should in this case be water wings Uh Uh-huh I've been looking around the website And listening to the television And finding out what else has been on And I hit upon the fact that it had been the World Diving Championships. Well, what about it, you say? Well, when I tell you this, World Silver puts daily in touch of an Olympic place. You'll see why I am just a little bit excited because you may recall I am a huge fan of Tom Daly. Tom and his partner Noah Williams took silver in the synchronised springboard. More about the differences in a minute. You have to wait. And this means that although the place hasn't got their names on it, it means Great Britain have won a place at the Games. And given that the Games are only 161 days away, so A-L-E-X-A tells me, you know, it would be pretty hard for the selectors not to pick Tom. If he is selected, this will be his fifth Olympics. His first Olympics were back in Beijing in 2008. But then what I found even more incredible and I had to check again with A-L-E-X-A He is now 29 Gosh, you'd have thought with the career and all of his achievements he was much older than that But I think it's about time to get knitting a winner's cardigan daily Oh yes, we know how you like to knit Now, while I'm on the subject of diving, in the Olympics, there are eight medal events, four for women and four for men. Two on springboard and two on platform. And in each case, there's an individual and a pairs, or basically a synchronised. The springboard, you can tell I've been doing my homework here, is three meters above water level and the platform is 10 meters. Ugh, the thought of it alone makes me feel sick. The difference is, as you can probably tell from the title, the platform is absolutely solid. It is made of concrete. It is usually a sort of concrete square. About five foot wide at the end Whereas the springboard is quite a bouncy Not that bouncy till you get jumping though Um, Sort of like literally a pirate's gangplank And that is about one foot wide And in the synchronise which Tom and Noah won Well they won the silver The pairs have to match everything, ranging from height achieved when they do start their tumbles and twists, the speed of their tumbles and twists, the entry point to the water and sneaky, sneaky. They now have underwater cameras so they can see if one of the divers sort of topples over or if they just come up. In a light curved arch Anyway, I'm sure we'll hear more Well, we will hear more about the diving Nearer the day But I am so chuffed about my little Tom As I still think of him And finally I said you'd hear more about the Maidstone game This was a wonderful quote from the CWR commentator and former City goalkeeper, Steve Ogrizovich. Oh well, when we play Maidstone, we'll have 25,000 City supporters in the CBS, many thousands more listening on the radio or watching on the iPlayer. And the rest of the country... No, let's be honest, the rest of the world supporting Maidstone. And he is so right, because who did I support when Maidstone drew Ipswich and played Ipswich? Maidstone. Oh well, City. Just bring their run to an end, but in a nice way. Anyway, that has been your sport from a rather happy Sarah this week. Bye, folks.
2: Yes, good news there about Tom Daly. There aren't many athletes who go to five Olympic Games. And now here's Dave with Postbag. This is Postbag.
1: <laughs> Join in the discussion.
7: Hello there and welcome to your Postbag. Thank you so much to Janet Lucas of the Monday Club when she made a nice comment about the guest appearance of former newsreader and now Strictly Come Dancing contestant and star, Angelo Rippon, it was reassuring to me that I'd still got the confidence to go up to a celebrity in a crowd and grab them for a scoop for Outlook. Thank you for commenting on that, Janet. And here's someone else who's been in show business. That's Graham Whale. He's been in the Coventry groups, including the Spires and the Mysterious Monks. He talks about the Swinging Sixties.
5: It was interesting to hear the item about uh, the Swinging Sixties, and um, uh, the point was made that uh, the older generation didn't like didn't like modern music, that it wouldn't be here long, it'd be here today and gone tomorrow. <laughs> they got that long. Um, but, I, I could see that and understand that uh, when I came back to Coventry, uh, the first band I joined was a um, a club band. Uh, they specialised in playing in working men's clubs, which I've never liked. I can't stand the places, to be honest. I mean, we're talking about the sixties when uh, you know the generation gap was still was still uh, ripe, and a forward-thinking committee would probably know that they've got to do something to keep the youngsters happy, so they would book what was referred to in those days as a BEAT group. That's what we were, a BEAT group. But generally speaking, the clientele weren't interested, they couldn't wait for the bingo without any interval. And do you know, some of those places even expected us to pay the national album at the end of the night. Oh, they just didn't get it. Oh, how things have changed.
7: Thank you, Graham. There was a reversal in the generation gap, according to our eldest son, Paul. There was a time when young people were listening to tame music from S Club 7 with their parents trying to interest them in the Sex Pistols. From a group with sometimes dubious lyrics to a rude song about a rival football team, referred to by sports presenters one week, but I would like to emphasise they were not condoning the singing of the song on the terraces. Here's Ali Verney.
8: Hi, this is Ali Verney. Um, thank you, Hugh, for letting me know about the outlook being on Alexa. I've regularly listened to it. I really like, um, the information. But there's only one area of, um, a book where I do not like, and that is sport. Um, if, I, if I could actually fast forward through through sport, I would. Because uh, the lady just annoys me. Um I when she mentions about spitting on the villains, spitting on the Lester, and that also one thing I used to also enjoy when I was partially sighted was watching snooker. He didn't mention that easily either. But besides that, everything else I really do like about Outlook. It's really, really good, and it's well recommended to all visually impaired people around Coventry, the West and Warwickshire. Like I've got friends. Take care. The, the best bits we just find, which I really do like, is when um the uh, documents on the second part. I find that they're very facts uh, I find that they're very interesting and um I learn quite a bit from it And uh, I uh, also like the news and what's on as well. Not forgetting post bad with Dave Monks. Speak to you again. Bye for now.
7: Thank you, Ali. I've been told that you can fast forward sport by telling the listening device, beginning with the letter A, to move forward 10 minutes. But I hope you, as a sports person who has done some incredible things like swimming in Lake Windermere, might just get something out of listening to Sarah, who has also showed great determination in sports, such as marathon running. She does her best to make sports interesting and descriptive for her fellow visually impaired people. But don't lose interest in sport because following my reports on the British Blind Sports, there's a new sport coming to the Resource Centre called Showdown, so get involved in that. Julia, though... She's feeling romantic. Her latest report is entitled A Valentine Acrostic. My friend John said, I've gone all soppy this week. I told him that I am soppy, and he's just a bitter and twisted old man. Here's my acrostic poem V is for Valentine, A is for Affection, L is for Love, E is for Emotions. N is for Nice, T is for Together, I is for Intimate, N is for Next Week, the 14th, Valentine's Day, E is for Engagement, and S is for Sweetheart, and that makes Valentines. There were lots of different Valentines gifts, cards, chocolates, poems, sweets, flowers, Jewelry, a date at the restaurant, or the back row of the cinema. Red is the best colour for Valentine's. Red hearts, roses, or red knickers. My friend John's got red knickers. Love songs are popular. My friend John said his favourite is an old song about jelly deals. He says it gets him in the mood. I don't think we want to know that in postbag. What a horrible thought. I hope everyone has a happy Valentine's Day. You're never too old, you know. Well, my friend John is too old, but that's another story. Lots of love, Julia. Thank you, Julia. Sheila used to give me cards with acrostic poems that she'd written. I didn't know the name was acrostic. I've got a lovely card she painted at the Stroke Group with lots of hearts on it. Which gift would you go for on Julia's list? How about the back row of the cinema? <laughs> that sounds great. Remember, you can enjoy a visit to the cinema with the help of audio description with the headphones. It's available on every screen at the Odeon and certain screens that Showcase. Many things were available on your phones these days but not apparently if you have 3G as Graham Whale is finding out. Graham complains about the possible loss of his phone when 3G is scrapped.
5: It was interesting to hear the item in Outlook News about Vodafone switching off uh, 3G. I can also confirm that Um, EE are also switching off uh, 3G. Uh, This concerns me because my small going-out phone is a 3G phone, Nokia C5, with a limited uh, internet capability, which I don't actually need. Actually, all I need that phone to do is to make calls and texts, uh, which I can probably make use of when I'm actually out and about. It's a small phone which fits in my pocket. Um, and I had a text to my phone to tell me that um, from January onwards, um, they were going to phase out uh, 3G. And I, from then on, I would only be able to make calls or texts. Well, I was concerned about this. So I rang EE. I've spoken to EE customer service three times, actually, and got a slightly different story each time. However, the bottom line was that I needed to go into an EE shop and show them my phone, which I did. And I went in and showed them my phone and I was, well, I was taken aback a little when I was told that um, I would not be able to use it at all as they were switching 3G and 2G off. Well, I spoke to the RNIB technical department over this because um, um, I actually bought the phone from them. And they're actually, they're still selling phones now with 3G uh, SIM cards. Anyway, they eventually came back to me, and the lady told me she'd been onto uh, EE's website. Yes, they are ending 3G. They will eventually uh, end at 2G, which is where you can make your calls and your texts. But at the moment, they're leaving that on. So the original text to my phone was right, um, I should still be able to make texts and calls from my phone and that will probably suit me but another thing which people might need to look out for I think they call it digital or something like that by 2025 all BT customers will have to have their landline run up their internet this is a problem as far as I'm concerned because um, my phone is plugged in in the hall where I want it I've also got an extension upstairs and my internet connection, my uh, hub, is in the living room, some yards away the other side of the road, the other side of the wall. So I don't know how they're going to plug my phone into my internet connection. And I don't know how people are going to get on if they haven't even got the internet in the house. However, they're going to write to people. BT will write to customers when it affects them. So I hope they come up with a solution. Thank you, Graham. Tell us about your phone.
7: How visually impaired friendly is it? Finally, Edwina talks about a visit to a Christmas market and buying something that reflects her interest in bumblebees.
9: I was very busy enjoying myself just before Christmas because I visited Stratford's Christmas market for the first time. I saw a mister. It was a beautiful shawl, and it was covered in embroidered bumblebees. I'm a fan of bumblebees, and I do have plants in the garden that attract the bumblebees. I'm not in the least bit afraid of them because bumblebees are so busy doing their business, they don't take any notice of us. But if you try to swap one, then it will feel cross, and it will sting you if you're nearby. So, I've been so very used to walking under a honeysuckle um, archway, over my mum's garden path. I never took any notice of them. But I am enjoying seeing, especially in my front garden, a beautiful white covering of flowers covered in a dark colour. are the, the bumblebees. I can't see them enough to see they are the yellow and black bumblebees, but I can see the difference between the black and the white. So I know that they're busily, happily, having a good time doing their job of collecting nectar. So, when I saw this beautiful shore with bumblebees, it was a mistake. So I bought it. I haven't used it yet. But I know that it's there, lovely and sharp, ready to be used.
7: Thank you, Edwina. Einstein once said, if the bees become extinct, we will follow them within four years. Well just in case he was right, think of the bees when you are gardening, and above all. Be friendly and send the message into Postbag as well. Thank you very much and bye for now.
6: This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag.
5: Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk Our email address
1: is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk Join in the discussion
2: on Postbag. Thanks, Dave. Let's now look at 2024, the year the BBC pips celebrate their 100th birthday. This is an article taken from the Daily Express, written by Neil Clark and read by Bill.
10: Tories have their problems as we enter a new year. Exactly 100 years ago, the start of 1924, was a similarly tricky time for the party. The December 1923 General election: Conservatives, led by Stanley Baldwin, lost nearly 90 seats, and although they remained the largest party, they lost their parliamentary majority. Eventually, Britain's first Labour government, under Ramsay MacDonald, was formed on January the 22nd with Liberal support. Today, 23 years ago, dear Grandmamma Queen Victoria. I wonder what you would have thought of a Labour government, wrote King George V in his diary. Could it be an omen for Labour in 2024? Well, if it is, Sir Keir Starmer will be hoping that his government lasts longer than Macdonald's, which was all of nine months. The domestic political situation is not the only similarity between today the Britain of a hundred years ago. Some of the parallels are uncanny. It may have been a century ago. You could say 1924, was the year the modern world was born. So many of the firsts of that year are things which are still with us today, and which we would struggle to do without. Probably the most significant development was that of television. Although the start of regular BBC television transmissions was still 12 years away, it was in February 1924 that the pioneering Scottish inventor John Logie Baird sent the first moving images over a short distance. Two years later, he gave his first public demonstration of television to 40 members of the Royal Institution. How many people at the time? have realised just how much Logie Baird's invention would change our lives. While television was being developed, radio service was greatly expanding. The BBC had been established in November 1922, and 1924 saw a series of wireless firsts. The first adult play written for radio, Danger, by Richard Hughes, we also broadcast in January. The same month also saw the first church service broadcast from St Martin in the Fields in central London. In February, we heard the famous BBC clips yes, for the first time and received the hourly GMT signal. The idea of a clips countdown originated with Frank Hope Jones, the chairman of the Wireless Society of London. And an authority on clocks. We're still listening to Mr. Hope Jones's good idea a century on. You can set your watch by it, literally. year 1924 was when the British breakfast changed too. US cereal manufacturers, the Kellogg Company, opened an office in London, and cornflakes and all bran went on sale. Millions of Britons began to get into the ready-made cereal habit. It was also the year when the American Clarence bird's eye invented the fast food freezing process, which would lead to the development of frozen food. Where would we be without that today? It also saw the advent of ice lollies, paper tissues and arga hookers. And the birth of a whole new industry, which is still going very strong today, public relations. Moreover, 1924 was a year of great advancement for women. Flappers shocked many in society with their bobbed hair, their dancing and their smoking, usually through long cigarette holders, which were a must-have fashion accessory. Everywhere, it seemed, women were on the march. In January, former shop assistant Margaret Onfield became the first female government minister when she was appointed Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Labour in the first Labour government. In February, she became the first woman to answer a question on the order paper in the House of Commons. Since then, we've had countless women ministers, three female Prime Ministers, Margaret Bonfield with the trailblazer.
2: And Bill will conclude that look at 2024 next week. Marking an even longer anniversary this year are the high seas heroes of the RNLI, the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, which have been saving lives at sea for the last 200 years. Maren McMullen of the Coventry Telegraph looks back at the origins of the RNLI in her article, Past Times, read by Elaine. Sir William Hillary
3: first approached the Royal Navy 200 years ago with an idea for a service dedicated to saving lives at sea. His vision was rejected. The retired solicitor lived on the Isle of Man and witnessed dozens of shipwrecks and knew something needed to be done. The danger of shipwreck was an accepted way of life at sea, and there were nearly 2,000 sinkings around the coasts of the UK and Ireland then. Sir William continued to press for action, undaunted by the initial setback. After a public meeting, advertising and support from MPs and merchants, he received the backing of King George IV and the Prime Minister Robert Jenkinson. And so, the National Institution for the Preservation of Life from Shipwreck was born in 1824, changing its name to the Royal National Lifeboat Institution in 1854. Sir William wrote, This institution has been honoured by the high patronage of the king, sanctioned by many of the most distinguished characters in the church and state, and sustained by the bounty of a generous nation. The inaugural meeting was held in the London Tavern, Bishopgate, and the charity has gone on to save some 144,000 lives since its foundation. Sir William himself helped to save more than 300 people from drowning as part of the Douglas lifeboat crew, even though he never learned to swim himself. His family motto was, With courage nothing is impossible, and he introduced a medal system to honour the crews who took part in some of the daring rescues. Grace Darling was just twenty two years old when her bravery led to her becoming the first woman to be awarded the silver medal for gallantry. She became a national heroine in eighteen thirty eight. When she risked her life to rescue passengers from wrecked steamer Forfarshire with her father William, the Longstone lighthouse keeper, in stormy conditions. They rode a mile in gales and raging seas to reach the survivors stranded on rocks. Her father simply recorded in his logbook nine persons held on by the wreck and were rescued by the darlings. Grace later recalled how the cries of the sufferers on the remaining part of the wreck were heard during the night. The RNLI has long relied on donations. The people of the Midlands raised £425 for a lifeboat named Wolverhampton in 1866, which was sent to the Mumbles. She was wrecked in January 1893 while trying to save the crew of a German bark, Four lifeboat men died, leaving four widows and 19 children. The people of Wolverhampton did not forget, and bought a replacement boat. Mr Powell of Tettenhall paid for the fourth Wolverhampton lifeboat in 1896, which went to the Point of Air in Flintshire. He said, If the boat ever should be the means of saving one individual from destruction, I shall feel heartily repaid for anything that I have done in placing her here. Burton townsfolk saved the lives of 65 people over 17 years, thanks to their funding of a lifeboat, despite the town being nowhere near the sea. The cost of £620 was collected by the town, and the lifeboat was launched to great fanfare with a major procession through streets and was stationed at Redcar from 1867 to 1884. There have been many heroic rescues over the years, and during the First World War alone, lifeboats launched 1,808 times and saved over 5,000 lives. During the Second World War, they saved over 6,000 lives. Two RNLI crews also joined the armada of small ships that helped evacuate troops from Dunkirk. Twenty women also launched the RNLI Charles Cooper Henderson lifeboat at Dunge lifeboat station in Kent in 1940 to rescue an RAF pilot who came down in the English Channel. Their husbands were away fishing. The Mumbles lifeboat crew were awarded a gold medal, two bronze medals and five bellums for the rescue of a Canadian frigate in 1947. Two of the men were over 70, two in their 60s and the youngest was 40. Henry Blogg was the most decorated lifeboat man in RNLI history. He served for 53 years on Cromer's lifeboats and with the assistance of his crew saved 873 lives from the North Sea. He retired in 1947 at the age of 71. The first wooden lifeboats were powered by oars and sails. Now the motor-powered lifeboats use the latest technology to continue their work in saving lives. There are 238 lifeboat stations, and lifeguards watch over more than 242 beaches. Funded by voluntary donations, and with lifeboats crewed by specially trained volunteers, the RNLI is a truly unique rescue organisation, and the Royal Mint is marking the 200th anniversary of the RNLI with a 50p corn. Created by John Bergdahl, the coin features the R-N-L-I flag. They do a wonderful work and are indeed heroes, and we hope we will never need them.
2: A great charity doing a wonderful and often dangerous job. A fellow named Ruben Coe was marooned in a care system during Covid and became withdrawn, depressed and utterly mute. Then he sent a text message to his older brother, 2,000 miles away, and Keith now tells the story.
11: Manny Coe, 49, describes his youngest brother, Reuben, who has Down syndrome, as a heart on legs. He says, There is no malice to him, he's all soft edges. When I asked Reuben, 39, to describe Manny, he's equally loving. He's my brother, he tells me in a warm whisper. I love him. He makes me a little bit strong. It's the sentiment that encapsulates the brothers' unique bond. Their story is one of profound love and sacrifice at a time when it was difficult, due to the strictures of Covid, to offer either to someone adrift in the care system. It also poses important universal questions about how we care for those we love. In 2020, Reuben was living in a care home in Dorset. Depressed and fogged by prescription drugs, he hadn't spoken for a year and enjoyed no meaningful social contact over a four-month period after his overstretched carers encouraged him to isolate in his room during the first COVID lockdown. His only company was DVDs of Mary Poppins and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and the only way he could express himself was by writing poems or drawing felt tip scenes from his favourite stories and West End musicals. Cut off from everyone and everything he loved, Ruben began to withdraw into himself until the day he sent Manny an anguished text message. It read simply, Brother, do you love me? Manny was 2,000 miles away in Andalusia, Spain, where he ran a a bespoke travel company, when he received a text message that challenged him to act upon the depth of his love. I lived in Spain for 23 years, and Ruben had stayed with me for years at a time, but he deteriorated while living in the UK, and had been placed in a care home. When I'd visited him there that summer, I'd been desperately concerned about him, he explains. He was a broken man, shut down. He didn't want to communicate and couldn't look me in the eye. We weren't allowed to touch and we had to wear masks. I felt as if I was visiting him 40 years in the future and seeing him as an old man in a retirement home. He needed to hang on to me to walk but we weren't allowed to touch. It was very sad to see him so desperately lost. It was as if all the loneliness was the widening of a river between us. I could see him but I didn't know how to get to him. The message may have been just five words long but coming from Reuben it was what Manny describes as a huge emotional expression. It was as if he had reached across the river to me with his SOS. He may have been crumbling, but it showed he knew what he was doing. After discussing the situation with his partner, Jack, 59, who runs a media agency in London, Manny decided that the only solution was to travel to England and bronap his brother from the care home. Jack suggested that I self-isolate for ten days and then travel to the UK through the safe corridor of Gibraltar before breaking Reuben out of the care home, he explains. A family conference conducted by Zoom with parents Tim and Jenny and their two other brothers, one in the US and one in the north of England, revealed the entire family was in accord. While the rest of his family sheltered from COVID, with his father on the extremely vulnerable list, Manny bought a one-way ticket to the UK. Jack told me to use his cottage on the Jurassic Coast as a base. He said, you know this is not going to be a quick fix, and he was right. Rubes and I were there for 26 weeks. (laughs) The story of the siblings' six-month project to put Reuben back together again is now the subject of a lyrical and moving book, Brother Do You Love Me?, written by Manny with illustrations by Ruben, which has just been shortlisted for the highly prestigious British Book Awards 2023. It details their electrifying odyssey together, as Manny deploys what he calls tough, energetic, imaginative love to heal his brother and help him to reconnect to the world. It's no exaggeration to say that Manny may have saved Ruben's life by rescuing him from care. There was a terrible death toll among the vulnerable and elderly in care homes during the pandemic, with more people dying in residential accommodation and hospitals, affected not only by disease but by profound isolation at a time when they needed love loved ones more than ever. Rooves didn't need looking after, he needed someone to do with, not do for. But it wasn't an easy ride. I don't wrap up what happened in cotton wool, though there were times when it was really tough, says Manny.
2: And Keith finishes this fascinating story of Reuben Co. next week. Over a hundred years ago, life and living in Coventry was very different to today, as he'd been hearing from Allan in Hurdy-Gurdy Day's stories, which he now continues. "'Good
0: afternoon, Mrs Mills,' said the parson when she opened the door after he had knocked several times. "'May I come in?' Seeing the scared look on her face, he said, "'Oh, don't worry, I, I see you're busy.' She had her sleeves rolled up as she was doing some washing, and didn't ask him in as suggested.' but kept him standing on the doorway. She knew him all right. He said, I only came to invite you to the mother's meeting on Monday afternoon. Mrs. Charlton from the court just below is going, and I thought it would be nice if you would come along with her, as you know one another. She still had that frightened look on her face. So he said, Oh, don't worry, your husband knows all about it. It was him who told me to ask you. Immediately her face brightened, and she said, "'Well, yes, I would like to come, but what about the children?' "'Oh, you can bring them along, too. "'Well, the younger ones and the older boy goes to school, doesn't he? "'You'll be home by the time he comes out, or you can come along to you. "'Mrs. Charlton is bringing along her little girl, the one who doesn't go to school, "'and your children can play with her, and all the other children, in a little playroom at the back of the mission room, "'with somebody in charge, of course. "'There are plenty of toys for them to play with,' "'which have been given to us. "'They will have a lovely time, "'and I'm sure you will want to come again. "'You can keep the baby in your lap, "'and you will have a nice rest away from the older children, "'a lovely cup of tea with a biscuit, all free, "'and it doesn't matter if the baby makes a noise. <laughs> "'There will be other babies there. "'The vicar's wife will take the meeting. "'She is a wonderful person, "'and will see that everyone is happy.' "'All this the parson said, "'making it all sound so inviting to the poor woman,' "'who had had such a hard life and no enjoyment whatever, "'And that was how all the wives and mothers of the men who went to the Greyhound "'started to go to the mother's meeting every Monday afternoon. "'The children did enjoy the playroom, "'playing with the toys they had never seen before, "'rocking horses, dolls, doll's houses, etc., for the girls, "'and train sets, building bricks and cowboy outfits for the boys.' The mothers all enjoyed the meeting, free from the kids, with a free cuppa, biscuit, and a natter with all the other women. The older children, including our Grace, used to go to their mothers straight from the school, running all the way to get there as quickly as possible, and the news spread around the courts like wildfire by the playroom, with all those toys and cups of tea for the mothers. Soon, very soon, the mothers' meeting was full to overflowing, and I can well remember seeing all the prams parked along the wall outside the mission room in Greyfriars Lane. In addition to the work of the mothers' meeting, the vicar's wife interested herself in the cause of temperance and started a movement which she called Catch My Pal. Visiting the mothers in their homes, she saw for herself the terrible suffering and hardship their husbands inflicted on them and their families through drink. There were five or six pubs in every street, and the drunkenness was indescribable. I can remember being seeing men being thrown out of the street, rolling into the gutter, where they would lie too drunk to walk, until some of their pals, not quite so drunk, pulled them up and staggered home with them before the coppers came along and took them to the police station in St. Mary's Street, where the cells were always full. Our wives must have dreaded hearing the unsteady footsteps coming up the yard on the cobblestones. If we had to pass the pubs going down the street and the door opened, the babble of voices would gain in volume with the amount of beer consumed. And as it got near to closing time, it was as if it was coming from a loudspeaker. The noise was so great. The vicar's wife became so obsessed by the misery caused by all this drunkenness that she would go to the common lodging houses or Doss-houses, as they were known, where men who had come into the town to find work could get a bed for the night. They had to live in appalling conditions. The Doss-houses were generally derelict foundries and warehouses behind old houses, where the men cooked their own breakfast in their own utensils over a fire in the rusty ranges which had been left behind. They used to try and hide their frying pans and the other utensils, but often when they came in from work, if they had any, their grub and other things had been used or pinched altogether. They would then go out and get drunk at the nearest pub, with no food in their bellies, and come home ready for a fight. They would snatch other men's frying pans off the fire, and a riot would soon start, with all of them fighting one another. There would be Irish, Scots, Welsh all sorts. If it got too bad, the proprietor would send for a copper to eject the worst offenders. It was to this kind of place that the vicar's wife used to go, on her own, to try and get the men to join the temperance campaign. Of course there were a lot of men who would take advantage of her, and go to the vicarage to plead poverty, promising faithfully to go straight, just to get food and clothing and money for decent lodgings. She also found employment for some of them to try and keep them sober. This would last a few weeks in most cases, as the temptation would be so great they would drift back to their old habits. Their environment, of course, was against them. It was practically impossible to lead a decent life, and only two out of thirty kept straight. She eventually gave her life for the Catch My Pal movement. One night in the depth of winter, when she was ill with influenza, she got out of her bed to rescue some poor destitute and caught pneumonia from which she died. All the dropouts cried genuine tears. They all knew they had lost a true friend, who really cared for their welfare, and had given her life for them.
2: As very young children, we all learnt our English by rote, and since then I think we've rarely considered the origin of words and phrases. Susie Dent, though, has spent her whole working life playing with words and investigating their origins. And Margaret now reads some more of her Dictionary Corner, taken from the Radio Times.
12: Broadcasting. On the 2nd of October 1925, John Logie Baird live transmitted a human face in what would be the first real incarnation of broadcast television, a word that combines Latin and Greek to convey seeing from a distance. But the word broadcasting came not through the airwaves, but from agriculture, where it refers to dispersing seeds by hand, or casting broadly. We've re-spun the cast part in podcast, combining it with the iPod. The medium of radio has also inspired our language. Radio came from the Latin radius. Beam and transmitter comes from a blend of transfer and resistor as it carries an electrical current across a resistor. Perhaps radio's least likely legacy is the cat's whiskers A fine copper wire used in a crystal wireless receiver has become a byword for excellence. Anniversary The word anniversary emerged in English around 1200, based on the Latin anniversarius, which meant returning annually. First used in the church to mark a death or a saint's martyrdom, It became more generally used in the 16th century for the yearly marking of an occasion. The year sense is often lost now, so couples may have a six-month anniversary. The verse part of the word comes from the Latin for to turn, which is at the heart of a large family of words in English, such as vertigo. If you're looking for a rarer alternative to anniversary, in the 14th century, important dates were rather beautifully known as mind days, when a person or an occasion was brought to mind. Rain check. Anyone who has been thoroughly thunder in recent weeks, an old dialect term for being soaked to the skin in seconds, will appreciate the importance of taking a rain check, quite literally. The expression originated in the US of the 1880s in sports such as baseball, when a game might be abandoned or postponed as a result of heavy rain. In such situations, a ticket would be handed out to spectators, enabling them to attend a future event without further charge. The cheque here is the US equivalent of the British cheque, in this case an assurance that an offer will be fulfilled at a later date. Within a decade of the literal use of the expression, to take a rain cheque came to mean to refuse an invitation, but with a stated intention to accept another time.
2: Words, 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 how would we communicate with them? Without them, I beg your pardon. Someone who has regularly communicated with the Monday Club is polar explorer Mark Wood. Last month he spoke to the club shortly before starting his solo 100 years in the Arctic.
13: So, uh, so yeah, I come in sometimes. To, uh, David invites me along for tea and cakes and biscuits, which yeah. is always a good start. Um, but I, I'm planning my next expedition. So, some of you might not know, but I'm from Coventry. I was brought up here. I went to Skyshaw Jr. and Finnham Park. Um, when I was very young, I went to uh, Ravensdale School. don't know Wykin. Um, so, yeah, Coventry lad. Um, and I've been in the military in rescue, and, and I've done 20 years of expeditions. <laughs> so the, the next expedition is going to be the last one that I do pulling sledges. Um, but I'm going up in about four weeks' time to the Arctic, Canadian Arctic, and I'm going to be dropped off uh, by an Inuit hunter on a um, snowmobile, uh, 60 miles outside of the settlement. Um, the area I'll be working in is about a quarter of the size of Europe, uh, with a population of about 800 people, so very sparse, and 25,000 polar bears
10: uh, around
13: that region, so vast amount of uh, bears. Um, so I'll be walking, skiing alone for 100 days, um, covering over 2000 kilometres. Um, uh, so the reason I'm doing it is because we're doing it for science. So I'm collecting pure ice samples from an area which isn't, um, it doesn't have human beings going through. So it's very, very pure. Um, And the scientists are really interested in those samples to measure the contamination of the snow and how quickly the ice is melting. So it's much needed science. Um, The second thing is is, it's going to be a documentary. So uh, we've been working on it for six years, working on Mount Everest at North Pole, in Africa with anti-poaching teams and in Alaska with dog teams. So this is the final section of it. The film, which will probably be out on Netflix at the end of the year, um, and then um, uh, the education side, uh, I'm raising money for Sherborne Field Special School here in Coventry. So young children with from ranging from behavioural problems to actual, you know, pretty sharp physical problems. So I've written a book called My uh, How to Be a Polar Explorer, and it's a cartoon book. For 6 to 11 year olds. With a poster and a sticker. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I used to get when I was a little boy. And the stories about me as a little boy. With my dog who some of you have met. Um, so yeah. That's, that's the charity. And then the final bit is. Um, actually the podcast. Because that's to do with you guys. So you know. I love coming here. I don't get a chance always to come. And I apologise I didn't come at Christmas. Um, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But um, I do like coming here. And I appreciate you, David, inviting me all the time to come along. Thank you. Um, But I do mean that. I'm not just saying it. Um, so, because my grandfather was, was blind and he wasn't from birth. It was through accidents. So, we, used to, we grew up with knowing, you know, sort of just it was natural to us, if you like. Um, so, I'm happy, you know, to come along. But I the first talk I ever gave here and I always reference this I started to set up my projector and then somebody came up and said some of us are blind, some of us are partially blind we won't be able to see pictures I was like okay, so I had to be descriptive in what I could see on ice and I think when I stood on Everest when I did the Everest expedition I stood above, about two miles above the clouds and gave a, a call and I said I'm going to describe what I see I can see the curvature, of the earth the clouds below me and all this sort of stuff and I said right now I've put you in the picture for the Monday Club I'm now going to tell you what happened today so I now do live calls based on the fact that you guys can think in your head of where I am I I stand you shoulder to shoulder with me if you like so this next expedition is about that it's the podcast will be every day I'll be saying what's happened I'll be linking with people as well so I'm going to put your name down for a guy called Joe Sills. I'll tell you about this later. We'll contact you, and then you choose a day when you want to speak to me. Um, Oh, excellent. uh, Brilliant. brilliant, I've also got a link on the website as well through to to, uh, your site. So whoever goes on the site will draw attention to to this area.
4: Yeah.
13: yeah, so th- that's not the the weird bit. Okay, <laughs> the weird bit is this year. That well, last year I was well, for three years I've had a bad limp and a bad. My well, I haven't been too well, um, so I went in and had a hip operation, <laughs> hip replacement the start of last year. Um, I thought my career was over, and I was like, oh no, you know I've got so much to do. So I had this hip replacement, and then I went to Kathmandu 16 weeks later to do a to guide some teams in the Himalayas, and it all, and I was in so much pain, so I came back and had a hernia operation, um, and I thought, oh my God, and uh, checked my birth certificate, and I thought, okay, I'm getting a little bit older, um, but then I've got a new lease of life, I feel great, you know, I feel really good at the moment, um, I've put some weight on, got a little bit of be- belly on me, uh, but I need these reserves for um, the cold that I'm about to step into, um, I'll come back probably about four stone lighter, so um, that's when I take all the photographs of myself before I get fat again. <laughs> Up and down life, <laughs> so um, so yeah, it's been a hectic hectic year, but um, I'm really looking forward to uh, heading out there. I'm really so at the moment I'm excited. I'm trying to put my mind in the expedition because to, to to spend a hundred days alone in the freezer isolated from the human race plays havoc on your brain so you need to really focus and um, uh, I work with a psychologist about one thing in particular because um, I, I look too far ahead in life and she said you need to live in the moment mm-hmm. so she taught me a, a very simple act of putting my thumb against the next finger and then thinking of four things so it's four fingers so the first Touch on my finger is, is present, so I, I feel my feet on the ground and um, feel the cold around me. The next one is what I can see, then what I can hear, and what I can touch. So um, it's putting me in the moment. It might sound a little bit weird, all this, but I am stepping onto another planet if that makes any sense. So it's like being an astronaut, you're stepping away from the human race. Um, so I'm gonna not call it an expedition. It's more of an existence of my time, Um, and this is what I'm doing today. Does that make any sense? So, yeah, I pitch a tent, I eat my food, I move, and I just create that routine. Um, And it's no human has done this before. So Guinness World Records, first of all, classed it as the as um as some sort of egotistical thing. It was like you know, the longest blah, 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 you know, bare-chested human and all this sort of rubbish, and (laughs) that's not me. So I I said, we need to come up with some of the science. So it's it's the the longest uh, science-based solo expedition across the last remaining sea ice. Um, So that's more of a powerful statement. Um, So, yeah, so that's it, really. And I'll be back... um, I'm flying back to the UK it's funny booking your tickets home you know because you, you've got a lot to do in between that eh? so it's all talk at the moment but I'm flying back I'll be here J- July the 1st back in the UK um, so I'll link up with David again and I come down you better have a lot of cakes here by the way <laughs> to <come laughs> build up again. and I would put a few under the table for yourself so I'm going to be wading into them I tell you <laughs> um yeah, and then I'll come back and see you, but, um, but I'll make sure that I put a call out to you guys, and maybe you play, David will play some um, some of the updates each day. that makes I see, sense? I say yes, yes, yeah. that would be great. Excellent.
2: And I've no doubt Mark will be in touch again very soon. Uh, that's all for this week's programme. My thanks to everybody who's been involved in it, uh, and hopefully we'll have your company next week.